with Scott Allen. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in this beautiful world. I am your host, Scott J. Allen, and this is Phrenesis, Practical Wisdom for Leaders. Now, I am a professor of management at John Carroll University in Cleveland, Ohio, USA. In addition, I'm a husband and father of three teens. Now, this is a family endeavor. Will played the intro, Kate voiced the intro, and who knows, you may hear from Emily a little later. I'm also an author, entrepreneur, speaker, and co-founder of the Collegiate Leadership Competition. I love to travel, explore new places with family, and learn from others. Phronesis offers a smart, fast-paced discussion about all things leadership and followership, if we're honest. My guests are scholars and practitioners, and we cover relevant topics and incorporate practical tips designed to help you make a difference in how you lead and live. I am proud to share a few updates. According to Listen Notes, Phronesis is listed as among the top 3% of podcasts in the world because of you. So thank you. In addition, the podcast has two sponsors. First, Phronesis is the official podcast of the International Leadership Association, an association that is near and dear to my heart. ILA brings together leaders and those who teach, study, and develop leadership, advancing leadership knowledge and practice for a better world. Learn more at ila-net.org. My second sponsor is the Bowler College of Business at John Carroll University. At Bowler, we offer several advanced degrees and MBAs, and I'm confident that there's one that will fit your location, interests, and timeline. In fact, our online MBA is ranked as the number one in Ohio and number nine in the United States. We offer international study tours, a contemporary and forward-looking curriculum, and access to senior leaders and flagship organizations. Learn more at business.jcu.edu. You can find links to both sponsors in the show notes. Now, if you like what we're up to, please hit subscribe so you can stay current as we release new episodes each week. You can also share what we're up to with others, friends, colleagues, leaders, teams, students, and others you think will benefit. And now, today's show. Okay, everybody, welcome to the Phronesis podcast. Thank you for checking in wherever you are in the world. Today, I have a new friend, and she's in a state I love. Professor Susan R. Madsen is the Karen Haight Huntsman Endowed Professor of Leadership in the John M. Huntsman School of Business at Utah State University. Dr. Madsen is considered one of the top global thought leaders in the topic of women in leadership, has authored or edited eight books, and has published hundreds of articles, chapters, and reports. Her research has been featured in the U.S. News and World Report, The Atlantic, The New York Times, Parenting Magazine, The Chronicle of Higher Education, The Washington Post, and she is a regular contributor to Forbes. She's a well-known speaker in local, national, and international settings. Susan has founded many women's networks, and she serves on a host of nonprofit community and association boards at really all levels, whether that's the state level or uh, the local level. Madsen received numerous awards for her teaching, research, and service. And Susan, we are both Golden Gophers. Oh, yes. I yes. love that. Well, I, I did love my- it. I did my undergraduate degree at the University of Minnesota, and I was in the family social science. So that was my undergraduate degree in well, the College of Human Ecology. And so we have that in common. We are both golden gophers. And you love Utah. So that's, and I that's love, great. I love Utah. And you were mentioning the Palouse before we got on. Yeah, I up in Idaho. Have an image of the Palouse in Idaho up near Moscow. I love that part of the country. It is so wonderful to meet you. Thank you so much for spending some time with us today on the podcast. Where I'd like to begin, 
Uh, you've done so much work with women in leadership. What I would love to start with is just what are some of your contemporary thoughts on that topic? Having now started a number of programs, been engaged in this work at multiple levels in international organizations and at the level of the community, what are you seeing? What are some themes kind of popping up for you on this topic? That's a great question. So I've been in this particular topic of women's leadership and uh, and things related to women's leadership, I should say, for about two decades now. I've done a lot with human resource development and leadership development more generally, but I really, I have to say, I feel absolutely called to do the work I do and uh, very driven to do that, both in the state of Utah, and we can talk more about that, but also nationally, um, I've run things for, for agencies of the federal government, but also next week or next month, I'll be in the UK speaking and Slovenia and Croatia. So I really, really love that. So in the, I've been doing research for years and do a lot, uh, again, in the state of Utah. And what's interesting is early on in this work, I really wanted to just focus on developing leadership for women themselves. Mm. And I love that. That's I love... Coming from an HRD background, I love career development, training and development, leadership development, the whole development of yes. the people themselves, right? Yep, yep. I love that. And so I did that and I wrote some books early on and different things. But what's been really interesting is if you really want to lead social change is what, what my focus really is. You can't just talk about women's internal Aspirate. I love that piece, though, the internal aspirations and their motivations and, and personal barriers and those kinds of things. You have to get into society. Mm. You have to look at the external. You have to look at discrimination, at bias, conscious and unconscious bias. You have to look at systems and processes. And, and so I've been dragged into that area, which, which I'm in. This is getting multi-level very quickly. Well, when you're looking at change and I, I love change at all levels, but many people who may be listening know, because I've been talking about this for years, that I really have been working with the state of Utah and my work here has gotten bigger and bigger. And I am in conversations and, and Scott, I'll just say this. So I, I call my work in Utah, the, the women, Utah Women and Leadership Projects, but I get into topics like women in STEM, like voting, like women in politics, like sexual assault, domestic violence, all of those like poverty. And sometimes people will say, what are you doing talking about sexual assault or, or poverty? That's not leadership. Mm. Uh, so I push back and say, when a woman has been assaulted or when she's living in poverty, can she use her voice really? I mean, can mm-hmm. she, does she have confidence? There's this whole spectrum of what it takes to be a leader. Yeah. And if you don't, it's, you know, you could put Maslow's hierarchy up there, right? Yeah. That's safety. If you're not dealing with safety, if you're not dealing with how to raise aspirations in girls, like at that level, how are we going to change women yeah. in the workplace, getting women to top leaders, leadership, women in, in the U.S. Senate, all of those areas. So I go 
pretty broad, Scott, as you can see. If you just try and stay in your silo of what you love to research, just one piece, you're missing this systems view of so many things that impact girls and women. And and anything that impacts women impacts families and impacts society. So it's not just a quote. I'm putting quote marks up. It's not just women's issues. Okay. Women's issues, again, impact everyone. Yes. As you think about even some of the conversations that you're in at the state level, what are some things that come to mind for you as, as top priorities? Again, if we kind of go to that, that framing of Maslow, what are you seeing as top priorities to establish that base? So then we can build from there. What do you see? Oh, so many thoughts on this. One of the things I'm working strategically right right now and uh, published a piece in our main paper for the state yesterday on some of these issues really is helping organizations, helping companies, helping our state government understand what flexible and family-friendly policies and programs and mm. initiatives Let's shake things up. What are things that have been linked to research? Everything I do is linked to research um, that have shown to increase and and improve retention. Well, I should start with recruitment, right? Yeah. Hiring, yeah, retention, yeah. you know, development, all of those things. So that I'm in conversation. Cycle. Yeah, it really is. And honestly, we have a place in Utah called Silicon Slopes. It's, I mean, we have Google, we have everybody here. I, you, it's kind of, it's like, you know, Silicon Valley, but it's in Utah and it's, and we have a talent shortage. We have so many openings right now. So it's crazy to be in Utah. We have one of the best economies. So we're starting to finally talk about talent shortage and how to do this. And so I have CEOs all the time that say to me, okay, I'm hiring women but they're not staying mm. like what? And I'm like, describe your culture. Yeah. Describe. They, they're like, we want to develop them and have them become leaders. Right. Develop, tell me about your compensation. Tell me. And, and what I say to them is this, you have a masculine culture. And they'll say, what does this, that mean? <laughs> And I'll say it's invisible to you. It's invisible masculine. But women who leave after a year, they can't put their finger on it, but they're like, I don't belong. I might be included. There might be a little diversity, but I don't belong. And so, you know, these are a few of the topics that when we're working with the business community, uh, we have events that we run from our project that we get a thousand people on Zoom for women themselves. So we do, I've had some great speakers on, but we like, like I had one on the gender research around salary negotiation. And I had a couple of people out of Harvard and some of the top in the world join us on the latest research on salary negotiation. Wow. So, so those are a few topics, um, you know, from, from women themselves finding purpose and calling or identity to see themselves as leaders unconscious bias and how to navigate all of that to be successful. Um, 
I'm on one right now. We've got to get more women to run for public office and to be elected. Uh, Women in public office change a lot of things for the state. So Mm. I'm all over the place, Scott, all over the place. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you're, you're doing a lot and I absolutely love it. I absolutely love it. I'm trying to decide where I want to jump in. I mean, I think, uh, can we stay for a little bit on this topic of uh, corporate life? What do leaders need to have on their radar when it comes to ensuring? Uh, Again, you might have Silicon Slopes and you might have Adobe and it's a wonderful organization and incredible output, but is it an environment, uh, again, from the very beginning, from when I'm recruited to when I'm uh, onboarded, developed, retained, succession planning. I mean, there's shifts in literally almost every part of organizational culture in that system that have to change, right? Yeah, the biggest thing, Scott, when you look at all the research, and there's a lot of research around this area, is if you do not have women in top leadership, and one is a start, But again, the research for years has said 30% of a corporate board or 30% of top leadership need to be, and that's minimum, right? Need to be there for for change. It impacts not every single woman, you know, it's the same or men, not every single man is the same as you know. But um, that is one of the biggest things because when we know that things change once women are at the table. So if we look at changing culture, if we work... That's got to be on the top of the priority list. And people have this out. They're like, well, there's not, we can't get them to apply or we can't, you know, there's, there's people out there. You need to recruit differently. You need to be looking around. You need to put some effort into that. But when a woman is there, her voice is heard more and it tends to be, and sometimes there's still some women that don't support other women, but more more now now these days that they will look around and things will start changing because of that. So that's one. Yeah. And then really, you know, I, I would say the second would be, you know, so many places I could go with this, but the second I would say is start really doing evaluation. So see where you're at with the gender wage gap. Yeah. See where you're at with the percentage of women in different in mid-level management and and different things when you measure things. Uh, you know, and 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 I'm always saying these days measure race too. Mm. Race and ethnicity. Yeah. That's important too because uh, just getting white women in there and I'm a white woman is is great in many ways but the, but you you know you you need diversity in all ways. So mm-hmm. so and women of color face other challenges that I don't face, right? As a white woman. So that's important too. So that would be the second thing is once you start measuring, the better. There's uh, parity.org. I I don't know if you know them, but they're quite the parity pledge. They're the ones that kind of started that, but they have a tool. They're a nonprofit and they have a tool that I think is just awesome um, that companies can but get into where it really measures almost everything is great when you link it to wow. the HR system. Also, more and more companies are starting ERGs, women yep. ERGs, employee resource groups. What we have to be careful with, though, Scott, is I have this wonderful model in my last scholarly book 
that has four boxes. You know, one of those great models yeah. with oh, four yeah. boxes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and, and on one side, there's action. And on the other side is awareness. And so are you in this bottom quadrant that has not a lot of awareness and no action? A lot of companies are there. Or are you in a place where there's a lot of action, but no awareness? That's what I was going to say. We have to be careful. (laughs) Like, check the box. Yes. Like, we're doing sexual harassment training. We're doing this and this, this. We're doing, that does not move the needle very much. Or are we a lot of awareness, you know, no action? Or are we really in that space of that high, high? Yeah, right? yeah. And that's different. And especially for leadership development and moving women in these spots and or opening the door in the culture to have women even move themselves into the spots, right? Into those spots. It's that's important. So there's so many things with companies just getting people to understand the culture and the invisible nature of the masculine culture. Yep. yep. Um, but most organizations are masculine in the way they've just been around and that they've been built by men. But yep. when I design women's leadership programs, I've done in the past, I don't have time anymore, uh, done mixed gender. I designed the pedagogies different with women. Hmm. Things are different. The categories I focus on are different than if men were in the room. Say more about that. So the, the literally the instructional strategies you choose to oh, use. Absolutely. So there might be, is it like what would come to mind for me is a greater levels of dialogue and reflection. Yep. Would, absolutely. That, would those be? Okay. Absolutely. And women, um, you, you want to leave space for more identity work. And that takes more reflection and that takes some vulnerability and women will not do that off most of the time with men in the room. You get women together and they're able to just dig deeper. And so you leave space for that. You leave space for conversations about that. Um, And I spend more time with men. I do not. But with women, there's some great research of a decade ago that came out of Harvard that really focused on the foundation of a leadership program for women. And at the foundation, you know, a lot of programs, a lot of conferences for women, you go and you go to a session on networking and you go to a session on negotiation and you go and, and the research is saying just doing that doesn't move the needle as much. Mm. But if you have three things at the foundation that you always work with, then those other things will start sticking. And those really are number one, Helping women, men naturally have a leadership identity that's stronger than women. Mm. And so working on identity work so women can see themselves, not just see themselves, but there's a model that I use. I won't get into that too much, but identity is one. Purpose and calling is two. Mm. And women need purpose and calling Mm. about 30% more than men do. Mm. Uh, meaningful work. My husband says all the time, like, do you have to have meaning in every single thing you do? I'm like, what's the And then third is, is really women need to really understand unconscious bias for themselves, but also to navigate because Mm. no matter what we do there, there is sexism. It is strong. Um, There's discrimination. It is there. Um, and the older I get, the more that I go through this, oh my gosh, Scott, the more I see. Really? I did not see all of this even five, 10 years ago. 
Wow. I see subtleties that are so, and I've, we've done so much research on these things that are there. And what I love is when women and male allies say, I want to understand, I want to go deeper. Um, and it's, it's amazing what you can do, how you can move the needle when you go to that, that depth. Well, I'm interested in, in understanding some of what you are seeing. Okay, we're working at the state level. I imagine there's there's policy. Yeah. There's just even you being in the media, being interviewed. And what are you experiencing? Some of those pushbacks that maybe you, you may not have seen 10 years ago, but what are you noticing as you do the work? Even as you promote some of the ideals you've just shared, I'm sure someone on Twitter is <laughs> being horrible. <laughs> well, right? you know, well, I, I I would say, first of all, I don't, I'm very out there. I do a lot of media. I do yeah. a lot of radio, TV. I do a lot of news. I, I publish, I, yesterday, a big piece came out that I publish in, and the newspapers, I work closely with them. I don't read all the comments. I don't read any of the comments in the news okay. because they're just junk. Yeah. Um, they're really not by not by good thinkers most of the time. Mm. And um, so I don't have the energy to do that. But what's been amazing to me is how receptive, and I think I've created that place of respect, yeah. um, which is really important as a leadership scholar to do where people will listen more. Mm. And in a state where there's really quite traditional values and so forth, I, I'm seeing some movement that's really exciting. So um, I'm a professor, right? Yep, but I'm yep. also asked by Governor Cox, who uh, has been in for a little over a year now, to co-lead for the state of Utah with his senior advisor of equity and opportunity, uh, a whole effort and initiative around equity and opportunity for the state of Utah. So I'm in conversations with the governor's cabinet, uh, with the advisors, with agency leaders, with CEOs, um, trying to everybody move the needle. And I'll tell you, I'm seeing this year more men that want to get it, that want to step forward, that want to be uh, male allies, that are open to it, that are practicing that language. It's so awkward sometimes with men who, you know, they're tiptoeing <laughs> around and then you get women of color, you know, you get race and, and it's so awkward. And so there's some men that I have really been not necessarily working with, but, but they're, you know, in conversations that just have have relaxed and they're just trying to learn and grow. And, and I love it. I love it. So you I, asked I have about an image, challenges. I have an image, Susan, I have an image of in our neighborhood, my wife and I walk every morning and this morning we saw a baby deer, literally oh. probably less than a day old, if, if that, oh. and it's wobbling around. And I, <laughs> at times I can feel in, in conversation, like that baby deer wobbling around, like a little bit unsure of how to navigate some of those conversations. Cause I want to learn and I am curious, but I also don't want to offend and I'm careful and it just, it feels wobbly. Right. And it is exhausting in some ways. Yet, yes. What I'm finding in my work with on race 
which I'm just getting, I feel like a baby in that conversation, but I, I'm working, is that that's how many of my sisters of color feel all the time. <laughs> and so, you know, because I kind of am wobbly in that space as well. And yeah. they, I told them, I said, I'm just so uncomfortable. And they like, Madsen, get over it. Just go. <laughs> if, if you, if you goof, we'll tell you, if just stop tiptoeing around the edges, uh, just get in and be open to learning and change. Um, so it's not perfect here, but what I'm seeing is um, movement. some movement. One of the interesting interventions, I'll call it, I'm putting quote marks here, is I had uh, one of our top leaders uh, who is the CEO of one of our biggest banks, a well-known banks in the state of Utah called Zions Bank. Yep. Um, he commissioned me and my team to, to look at the wallet hub worst and best states for women's equality. And Utah every year is the worst state. And really? so he, 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 it, it has three categories, 17 indicators. He said, I want you to go in depth with this instrument and tell us what as a state we need to do. And so we did that. We analyzed, went back to the original data of all of their indicators pulled and we'll have a dashboard out soon that's going to pulled it did a report a white paper that had very specific recommendations on how we can move the needle and get off at least from being the worst state hopefully like up the 3 or 4 but that's been a really interesting conversation um like the wage gap is on there women the poverty how many women in the state earn over $100,000 but then we've given very specific recommendations on what to do. Hmm. And so that, that is, these are all things that impact women's leadership mm-hmm. and even the presence of that. So, so it's been really interesting to, to be involved in this work. And I'm a researcher, you know, that's what I love. And I love being a change agent, but I do not do any research anymore and will never. Mm. That is not directly applicable to true change. Mm. And so everything I do, I see this is going to impact in this way. It's going to raise awareness. It's going to give tools. It's going to get to this audience. It is, you Relevant. know, um, Relevant. it has to be. <laughs> and I do scholarly articles for journals. Of course. But they're relevant. I, that's, but that's, <laughs> no, I, I'm going to say something that'll, that may, they don't get to too many people. Those are yeah. not that important compared well, yeah, to if yeah. for social change. So I do those, yet my series of briefs and white papers and stuff get right to the people and they're read by thousands and thousands of people. So I do a mix. You can't just do scholarly journals if you as a scholar, uh, and a scholarly practitioner, I should say both, want to actually use our research and knowledge to change things. Mm. So true. I'm just shaking it up. I'm just shaking it up. A no, little. no, I love it. And and so you're seeing this, you're seeing an increased level of receptivity yeah. among individuals. There's still so much work to do. Oh, of but, course. Of but course. Yeah, more people are in the conversation. The conversation is not going to go away. And our governor and lieutenant governor, we got a, a 
wonderful friend of mine who's who's a woman and she is the lieutenant governor. So that's great. Only been one other since in the history of Utah, but they are committed to this issue and they are saying, no, we need to move the needle. Tell us what to do. So I actually spent a couple hours with the governor's cabinet a few months ago and all the advisors that went through that report and they're like, what can we do? So we uh, release policy reports too for legislators. So I just was at a meeting this morning and talked to three or four legislators and they're like, what do you need us to do next session? Um, I'm like, uh, okay, we need this and this and this and this childcare, childcare, sexual assault issues, you know, leave policies. But we don't just say that we actually have the report that gets into specifics. So I know this is probably a weird interview for you, Scott, because it's very practical, practical stuff. No, it's not. It's not weird at all. I absolutely love it because I think you're at this really, really cool nexus that you that you just you said the words scholarly practitioner, an individual who is using evidence based knowledge to inform how we move the needle. And I think you've also highlighted just that wonderful kind of perspective that look, this is this is multi level. This is not only individual, so an individual's identity, some of their base level needs, but then this is societal. This is yeah, um, it's it's multi level, and you're working at multiple levels, which I think is fascinating. I really so, do. So I, I I'll mention something that, it, and again, I'm a leading social change. So we do research different kinds of reports, and that's the core, mm-hmm. and. We do podcasts about research and we do infographics and we're developing curriculum. We have a whole course that we just released on conflict management for women. Hmm. So it's an online curriculum and we're going to release one on imposter syndrome Hmm. for women soon. Um, So we do resources based on research and then do events and speaking um, And speaking, there's a real advantage for us as scholars or scholars practitioners um, to really work on how we translate research into the regular words. So we can present research to Girl Scouts (laughs) who are eight and nine and 10. Yes. But we still, and I have a way I do that with identity. That's really fun. Um, So we can present to, you know, uh, Rotary Club, who might be really like (laughs) 70s, 80s, or we can present to CEOs, or we can present to, you know, or or in our writing. Like I write from a full scholarly to editorials in the paper, and they they are written very differently and reports in the middle. So I think that's a skill for anyone listening to this podcast. You know, I I used to have students to say, I just don't write like that. And I'm like, "Uh, you just don't know, but you do. (laughs) You can. (laughs) You can. Depends on your audience. And then are you good enough to be ambidextrous and, you know, tailor the writing for that audience? So writing and speaking, if we really want our research to make a difference, you know, some people aren't interested in all of those levels, but I just push out there. I mean, you do a great scholarly study, find a way to be able to have your university put a press release out there. And how can you in 30 seconds give a punchline for media? Because gone are the days that 
that you just research and put it on a shelf. We don't have the luxury to do that anymore yeah. if we really care about people and society, right? Well, that's a really interesting perspective because you're you're almost not... I put an article on LinkedIn the other day that I had written and it, it's it's titled on the cutting edge of the chopping block. And it was really, it was for management educators and it was focused on, look, in colleges of business, are we really developing some level of tech literacy among our students? Do they have an mm-hmm. eye on what's coming down the pike? Do they have an eye on the future of work? In colleges of business, we do a great job of talking about the past. Frederick Taylor and the Enron scandal. We got that locked in. We do. (laughs) You know, know, current, pretty good case studies and things that were probably at this point written a couple of years ago, but looking to the future, we don't do enough of that. And so I posted on LinkedIn, but there's even a little bit of a, oh gosh, should I do this? Should I promote? Is this, is this smarmy for doing that? But you're exactly right. If we want our work to impact our communities, however we want to define the level there, you know, I, I think that's part of it. And so and- I'm going to push it, push it a little bit. I would argue that more and more, I mean, we have an ethical responsibility to do that. Mm. So I work at a, a public institution. It's taxpayers' money, right? Yeah, it is. I mean, it's and it's people, you know, students, but, but some federal, it's all over. You know, I I do think through the years that ivory tower, that research for the sake of just knowledge is out there. And I I try to respect that, but I'm like, you know, we, we need all these good minds working on what my dear friends in the UK have called for years, wicked problems. I love that term. Yes. Um, Do we not have the most wicked, challenging problems today that we have ever seen throughout time? The pandemic, war. I mean, how many things need the best minds to not just sit on the shelf, but get involved in complex problems? And, And, oh my gosh, just the topic of leadership. Do we need like, do we have leadership even at the head of countries? <laughs> and what does that look like? What does oh that my look gosh. like? Because the, the complexity that those individuals are facing is just, it, it's, yes, wicked problem, VUCA, yeah. ill-structured, ill-defined problems, chaotic at times. I mean, But I think we... that ethical, back to that ethical real quick, though. But to really use the funding that has been given to us to to be in these positions, to impact students, that's that's one of the top priorities. But to use our research for the public and the common good, uh, I just feel like that's so important moving forward. Let's talk about that for a moment as we begin to wind down. How did you make that transition? Has that always been in you? Just to want your research to be more relevant, the focus to be actionable, but because uh, you're working in a very unique way for an academic. I mean, I'm, uh, most academics that I know are not meeting with the governor and their work is influencing policy. That's not the norm, so to speak. And I think it's awesome. How have you navigated that space? How have you moved from getting full professor to 
this work? Has it just been a natural progression? Was it always a goal? Did it just kind of present some of these opportunities, present themselves, and then you found your energy there? Because as you said before we started, you're working long hours, but you have this passion for yeah. the work, right? I do. Part of that is my calling. Yeah. You know, I've done research on women's leadership and calling, and calling can be from God. And for me, I'm religious and spiritual. For, for me, there's a connection to God speaking to me to do this work. However, I just need to say, there's research also on people that are not religious, and they still feel called that they're made to do certain things. That's, that's powerful. And when you tune in or open yeah, up or in. whatever, tap in or yep. whatever we want to call it to that, you're here on earth to do this kind of work to really help people. Uh, that's really powerful. But back to your that's a big part of what continues to drive me. Yeah. Uh, but I've always been interested um, in change. And part of my doctoral work was around there in terms of, so change. And then I, you know, got into leadership and I've always been a public speaker. So I've done that. And so my name was kind of out there and the commissioner of higher education for the state of Utah uh, in 2009 reached out to me and asked me to go to breakfast and brought the associate commissioner. And he had been my president before. So I, he, I knew him and he said, this was 13 years ago and this was supposed to be a one-year project. Um, He said, you know, uh, we're, we have less women going to college and graduating than the rest of the nation. And I really want you to do some research. And then he said, you care about girls and women. And, and, and I had just published some books yeah. on the lifetime of women, the lifetime development of, of women governors and women college presidents. And how did they find their voice? How did they develop leadership? So I had just done that. And so I said, okay, you know, I, I'll do some extensive research all around the state, focus groups at different places, collect data. And I did that. And I said, hey, do you want data or do you want me to kind of get some change moving? Because I have always loved that. Yeah. And he's like, whatever you can do, Susan. (laughs) (laughs) So I started, you know, I've always been a fan of John Cotter's leading change book, which is a standard book on, and I've used that through the years. And, and I do a lot of that first step, uh, which is creating urgency, right? The data can do that. So I started collecting and doing reports, but it started the movement. And then I was going to move out. And then people said, hey, you're a data person. Can you do women in politics? Can you do this and that? And so I've continued. I try to give this up a couple of times. And then uh, people have just said, no, 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 you can't do this. <laughs> so, so, and then even with God, I, I like, I feel like I need to move in a different direction. It, it's like, uh, you got to keep with this. Mess. And <laughs> so, um, so I try to multitask, but that's how I started. And then you just open up into being in a place that's uncomfortable a lot of the time. But if you know how to lead, if you know how to do, and I, my background is organization development and change, you're okay stepping out into this place where you don't have the answers. And so I've always said the difference between a guru and a scholar is that the gurus have all the answers and scholars have all the questions. Wow. And so I have way more questions than 
I have answers. Yes. So, um, and when you have more questions and are comfortable with the questions, then you can move out and be okay in that zone of, I don't have all the answers. And, yeah. but I know I have confidence enough in myself yep. and that I can ask the right people to get in the room. I know I have the ability to get the right steps, that step forward, to do the next thing, to know what the next study is that'll impact. And, and when you goof, which, you know, you're not, when you fail, you know, what really is failure, you're willing to take a, back, a step back and say, you know what, that didn't work. I'm good right now. I'm going to stop that a study or whatever it is. And I'm going to go in this other direction. Yeah. And, and, but what I love about what you're saying is, yes, you might not have all the answers, but there's that jet fuel for the topic that we can move the needle, that this is something we can help improve the condition of. We're going to run these experiments. We're going to see what we can do to try and move the needle. And I I love how you framed that because existing in that space, kind of on those margins, failure is going to be more likely. Failure is going to occur, occur. But if you are tapped into that sincere passion, that calling, I think there's a reserve there. There's an energy there that I just have so much respect. I really do. No, well, thank you. I, I just feel, I feel like I'm in the right space, doing the right thing. I'm getting older. <laughs> you know, you just feel like, you know, all of these things sometimes come together. Your, your head, heart and hands, right? Yes, yes. Your head, all of the knowledge that you have. And sometimes we just get excited to get up in the morning. What's in our minds, the yes. things that we feel. And then that heart of, you know, I really, for me, I really want to do what's, what will help lift people. And then the hands, what do I love to do? And I do not love just sitting, writing and doing research, although I do a ton of that, but I like to see people. I like to get out and speak. I like to be able, sometimes I don't like, I have to say, I don't like all the media sometimes and stuff. It's kind of a pain, but when you put yourself out there and know that your voice can change things, and, and I would say any, but any voice could change things, then you feel that kind of weight. Yes. One of my strengths finders is responsibility. <laughs> That's terrible. <laughs> it's a heavy weight on the shoulders sometimes. So I love, I do talk about the head, heart, and hands a lot. And when you can get in that wonderful space where your yes. head and your heart and your hands all connect, then it, it really is powerful. And, you know, uh, again, kind of going back to Maslow, if if some of my base needs aren't met, that's going to be, it's going to be a hard place to get to. Um, and then even when those base level needs are met, am I... Uh, am I tapping into all three of those Yeah. and are they working synergistically to really, because I think I feel that I feel the, the, the three that you just said, I feel that in my work and it's a beautiful feeling because like you, I get up in the morning and I'm excited and I feel so thankful that I have felt that and that I do that. I do feel that in my work, but for those folks who don't, I mean, you can see why depression exists, anxiety exists, because I think on some level, it's that those things haven't aligned for them in their lives. Yeah. Well, that meaningful work, you yeah. know, you probably know the research that, and even if you're not work can be work with your kids at home, mm-hmm. but it ha- if you have meaning, 
it is so linked to better job satisfaction, higher mental health, better physical health. You know, it's 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 crazy. So the research is quite clear on that. But back to just one more statement. I know that we're wrapping up back to the women's leadership piece. I really do. I mean, the research is so clear that when you have the mix of great men and great women working together in terms of leadership teams, leadership roles, better things are going to happen, more innovation, Mm. more creativity. And I would just say that we can't, if we really care about doing better for this world, for our kids and grandkids, we have to move forward with greater diversity and inclusion and belonging. I'm very committed to that. And I think ILA is um, a, a place that many of us can convene and talk about these issues and figure out ways to do things better, even in our positions, whether we're a scholar or a practitioner or the superintendent of a school district. There's, there's answers in the research. There's a lot of questions still. I'm committed to this work, Scott. You could probably feel that. I can. <laughs> I love how you phrase that too. You, I can feel that. I can feel that. Okay. To wind down, what are you either going to read this summer? What's on your radar? It could have something to do with what we've just discussed, or it could have nothing to do with what we've just discussed. But is there anything on your radar that you're looking forward to getting to this summer? Or is there something you've read recently that really stood out for you? Again, could be something totally not related to what we've just discussed. Well, mine is usually related because my stack of articles and books is so high (laughs) and people keep sending me more. Um, But let me give you this. Um, uh, The Harvard Business Review sent me some books uh, and they have a series, a podcast series called Women at Work. Okay. And so I have three books that I need to read. I committed to read to them this summer. One on you, the leader, one on speak up, speak out, and one on making real conversations. And they're about women at work. Ah. And then my next couple of articles sitting here for me to read are called A Model of When to Negotiate for Women. Okay. Developing the Positive Identity of Minoritized Women Leaders. Uh, And it relates to overcoming imposter phenomena. And the last one is titled Forget the Mommy Track, Temporal Flexibility Increases Promotional Aspirations for Women and Reduces Gender Gaps. So there you go. And then another one on motherhood. Oh, I need to get a life. (laughs) Sounds like you have a pretty awesome life, a meaningful life, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Well, Susan, it has been so much fun to meet you. Like I said, when we first got on, uh, before we started recording, I can't believe we've never spoken. We've been That's in great. the same circles, but we have never really met. And so such a pleasure to get to know you a little bit. Thank you for the work that you do and would love to have you back sometime. And we can talk. I'd, I'd love to talk more about just how do we help people tap into that? Well, how I phrase it sometimes is kind of the people, the place and the purpose or mm. people place passion. What yeah. What is it? What environments help you thrive? What people help you thrive? And what work helps you feel like you can thrive? And I think it's a fascinating topic because I think everyone has those gifts. Everyone on earth has those gifts. And I think for a great faction of people, those aren't aligned for whatever reasons. That is so true. 
That is so true. And for women, one of my number one topics that I talk about now is women are socialized not to know and talk about their gifts and strengths. Wow. We're supposed to be humble. We're not supposed to talk about this. This is socialization. And I'll tell you, if you don't know your true giftedness and your strengths, you it's hard to find purpose. It's hard to find. So that's one of my biggest topics. We'll get there. We'll get there. We'll have that conversation. I will be in touch for talk number two. Okay. Thank you, Scott. Have a great summer, Susan. Thank you so much. Thanks. Bye-bye. Long-time listeners, and I think we're almost at episode 130 now, but long-time listeners will will know what I'm about to say. I very much appreciate Susan's approach. She is an academic, she is a scholar, and she is also using that knowledge to help transform her state, transform her communities, and in so many ways at the national and international level as well as she does this work really to empower women and design programming, leadership development programming, and creating spaces for people to develop and grow. And it's great work. It's incredible work. And so, Susan, I am so glad that our paths have crossed. I'm so glad that we are now connected. And I can't wait to meet you at a future International Leadership Association meeting. And as a PSA, I just heard through the grapevine that registration is now open if you are interested in attending the ILA's global conference this coming October, you can sign up. So head over to the International Leadership Association's website and start making plans. A lot of my guests will be there. Great opportunity to build your network, connect, and learn. So Dr. Madsen, thank you so much for the work that you do in the world. And for those of you who are listening, Thanks so much for checking in, as always. And if you like what we're doing, please share it with others. Take care. Be well. Bye-bye. You have just finished another episode of Practical Wisdom for Leaders with Scott Allen. To contact me, visit www.scottjallen.net or send me a note at scott at scottjallen.net. I can also be found on Twitter and LinkedIn, so let's connect. Now, if you have feedback, I'd love to hear it. And as always, thank you so much for listening. One final nod to our sponsors, the International Leadership Association and the Bowler College of Business at John Carroll University. And now, here's Kate's twin sister, Emily, with the outro. You've been listening to Phronesis, Practical Wisdom with Scott Allen.